Okay, well, yeah, uh, 2 Samuel, from time to time you come to text in the Bible when we're going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, where you go, wow, you're not going to ever hear this text in a kid's Sunday school classroom. And this is one of those texts, okay? So if you haven't read ahead or you have been reading ahead, um, yeah, it's definitely one of these texts. So let's just kind of get back in the groove of 2 Samuel because we've been away from it. But in the first half of this book, uh, what we've seen is this, is we have watched God bless David. God's done so much for David. He helped him defeat his enemies, established his kingdom, promised to him that one of his descendants would always sit on the throne of Israel and rule over the nation. And, and then what happened was this, David uh, had the great fall of his life. He committed adultery, he covered it up with murder and with deception. And most of the rest of 2 Samuel, we've got about, what is it, about 10 chapters or something left, are committed to uh, telling you how this played out in David's life and in David's kingdom and the challenges that he faced. Um, and so it's interesting to just think about this, to think about the nature of sin, to think about um, David's experience with this, because it applies to us. It's, it's really relevant and applicable. You know, we know this, that when we confess our sin, the word of God says this, that God is faithful, he is just, he will forgive us our sin, and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. That his word says he removes our sin. This is so awesome. As far as the east is from the west. Isn't that awesome? Those two never meet again. His word tells us that our iniquities get tossed into the sea of his forgetfulness. So it's like the next time you come before the Lord and you're like, yeah, well, Lord, remember that time? And he's like, no, actually, I don't. I forgave that. And um, we have to be reminded of that over and over again. But one of the things about sin and the nature of sin is that there is a difference between sin's punishment and sin's consequence. And sometimes we struggle to grasp this. David sinned. And God forgave him 100%. But what happens here as we, as we read this, that we know this, that sin still had consequence attached to it. Bathsheba's child would die. Nathan said David's concubines would be uh, defiled in the sight of all Israel and that the sword would never leave his own home. And yes, sin was forgiven, but sin had consequence. And so these chapters here that we're going to look at this morning and in the weeks to come kind of demonstrate this to us, and it's sobering. When you read these like texts of Scripture, it's really sobering because this is David, remember? The man after God's own heart, uh, the psalmist, and he's a warning to us. And the warning is this, that, that uh, you reap what you sow. As it tells us in Galatians, if we sow to the flesh, we will reap from the flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. So let's see what happens here as we just begin to watch this story unfold. So it says this in uh, verse 1 of chapter 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Ammon, David's son, loved her. Sorry, Amnon. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to, impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. So this story begins by introducing us into to three of David's children. 
Absalom is mentioned first because Absalom, David's second-born son, is really the, the theme character in chapters 13 through 19, okay? So we're going to talk a lot about Absalom this morning and in the weeks to come. This is Absalom's story. And Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. Did the same mother. David was their father. And they were born of a political marriage that David had formed with the king of Geshur, Talmai. The, the, the small kingdom of Geshur was a 130 kilometers north or so from Jerusalem. And David married this king's daughter. It was a political marriage. And born of that marriage were Absalom and Tamar, uh, both noted for their beauty. There was also Amnon mentioned here. And Amnon is David's firstborn son. He is the heir. It's important to catch this. He's the heir. This is the, the crown prince the heir to the throne of Israel, the one expected to take David's place. Now, Amnon was in love with his half-sister Tamar, which, I don't know about you, that's really gross to me. <laughs> like, if you're not creeped out, you should be creeped out, okay? That's the idea of this whole story. This is, this is not a normal thing. God's law in Leviticus 18, defined this as an un, the potential of this to be an unlawful relationship. It was an unlawful, you know, potentially sexual relationship. A man, according to the scripture, was not to marry his half-sister. So Amnon's love for Tamar was not something that was going to be allowed by God's law. It was not something that was going to be allowed by God's king. It wasn't going to develop and it wasn't going to blossom. And Amnon was in love with her to the point that he was physically sick by his infatuation. Now check it out, verse 3. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brothers. So, so Jonadab was David's nephew. He's cousins to all of these people involved. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare, prepare food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. So the instruction from this crafty man is this. Why don't you pretend to be sick? And I mean, he is sick already. Sick with love, according to this text here. Um, and he says, when the opportunity comes, ask your dad to send Tamar, and she can, you know, this is the idea, bring some chicken soup to you because you're sick, okay? Now, Jonadab, I just think about this guy. He's an example of the kind of friend you don't want. He's helping him scheme. He's helping him plan something that is going to lead to tragedy and lead to sin. You know, I would just say this, that anyone in, her, anyone in your life who makes it easy for you to sin is not the kind of friend you want to have in your pursuit of Jesus. Now, verse 6. I'm going to read lots of text this morning, so parts of it will move pretty quick here. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and he took dough 
and kneaded it and made cakes in his side and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send everyone out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where would I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than her, he violated her and lay with her. It's awful to read, isn't it? Hard to read. She's an innocent party. She's a virgin, a virtuous young woman. She resists him. We get that from the text. She tried to buy some time by saying, you know, speak to our father, the king. He's not going to withhold me from you. I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's true. I don't think that's true, actually, because it was an unlawful marriage according to the law, uh, potentially. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her, and so uh, he took her and he raped her, violated her. And what we see here just really clearly, that this isn't love, is it? This is not love. Uh, this is lust. Love does not do something like that. Love doesn't take a woman against her will and use violence against her. This is nothing more than lust. And, and the fact that it's lust is proven by what we read next because after violating her, he was overwhelmed with hatred for her, which we know is like a very common thing in these situations. Verse 15, Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. In verse 17, when we read that, the, the word woman is not actually even in the Hebrew text, in the original language. The literal translation of this instruction is this, get this thing out of here. It's awful. The hatred that overwhelmed her after he had uh, raped her. And, you know, here she is, she's a virgin daughter of the king. Such daughters of the king were kept in a, uh, a separate portion, section of the palace that identified them as the king's virgin daughters. Tamar was actually wearing a robe that identified her as such, as daughter of the king. It was a coat of many colors, actually, like the one that Joseph was given by his father, Jacob. And she says to her brother, you know, sending me away is greater, it would be a greater wrong than that which you have already done to me. Where am I going to go? And she can't return to the palace to live with her virgin sisters. She wouldn't be a good prospect in, for marriage in that culture. Where would she go? Who would want her? Now, verse 18. 
Now, she was wearing a long robe with sleeves. There'll be a footnote in your Bible. It'll tell you it was a coat of many colors, kind of a great picture right from the book of Genesis. For thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So the servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid with her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. So her reaction just demonstrates to us here that this young woman was totally innocent in the midst of what happened here to her. The pain is great. The shame was very great. And she goes to her brother Absalom, verse 20. And her brother said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Hold your peace. Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Now, I don't, I don't know as you read this if she told Absalom, hey, I'm going to go talk to dad. I'm going to go talk to the king and tell him what's happened. I'm going to expose this. The text doesn't tell us. Maybe she did. But her brother does this. He suggests that she wait. He says, don't take this to heart, that which has happened to you which I I think is probably the most insensitive thing that could have been said, don't you? And I think, why would he do this? Well, you know, Absalom, I think here, is beginning to plot and plan because he's next in line for the throne. And if he played this right, he could avenge Tamar, he could get rid of Amnon, and he could set himself up to take the throne of Israel. And so he says to his sister, He's your brother. Don't take this to heart. You know, this way, you know, a public scandal can be avoided. And and Absalom, if he played his cards right, could turn this to his own advantage. But the text tells us that word did get to the king. Look at verse 21. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. Now, it's shocking to read this because the text tells us that David was very angry, but some translations will tell you uh, uh, some, of, some will tell you this, that uh, he did nothing. In his anger, he did nothing. It's kind of shocking to think about David and see him in this light, right? It's like, this is the guy who slew giants, killed the lion, killed the bear, whom God used and raised him to the throne of Israel, slew a giant, and now he's in a situation where his own son has raped his own daughter, and he does nothing. Nothing. And, and it's kind of fascinating because I think with David, we're at this point where it's like he's been trapped by his own life and his own sin and the consequences own, of his own sin. You know, what could he do? I think the devil had him. You know, David, you're guilty of much worse. Adultery, murder, deception. David at this point seems like he was hamstrung by his own sin and it kept him from parenting his own children. And this is how Satan works, church. He lays shame on us. He says, remember your sins. Remember that which you've done. And he says, do you think that you're capable to be used of God in this situation? Do you think that you are able to speak into this situation? And he silences the people of God with with shame. 
Who do you think you are, David, to discipline your son or to speak into the life of your daughter because your own actions are just as bad or worse? And David's sin had reaped the sword into his own house. And if there is a failure, when I think of all of the things about David and all the wonderful things that we love about David, if there is one thing in his life that we would say is a failure in his character, it was his own ability to deal with his own children. And his failure to discipline them. No doubt he loved them, but he didn't know what to do. And so in his anger, he did nothing. And if anything, this text to me is a great reminder of how children just need their parents, you know. I was thinking about that. It, like doesn't, it doesn't even change as you get older or as your children get older. You're a parent and your children get older. Children need their father and they need their mother. And there are parts to parenting and disciplining our children when it's just, I mean, every parent knows this. Sometimes it's just easier to check out than to engage. Isn't that true? And our kids need us. And my encouragement to you as a a parent is this this morning. Don't check out on your kids. If there's a need for discipline, engage it. Engage them in relationship. David was angry, but in his anger, he checked out. And I have to think that it was because the devil had him over the barrel, so to speak. He knew what he was personally capable of. He knew what he'd been guilty of. The Lord had forgiven him, but he had, you know, really crippled David in his ability to parent his children. And so he said nothing. Now Absalom, on the other hand, kept his mouth shut and he harbored the offense against his sister in his heart. Check out verse 22. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Verse 23. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Belhazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. So this is kind of like perfect for this guy who's harboring this stuff in his heart, right? It's like, I don't think he really wanted David there in the first place. He's been plotting his revenge. And when David says, I'm not going to come, Absalom suggests, well, send Amnon in your stead, so to speak. And, I, I, and, and you read this, and it's like, David's catching on here. You catch that as you read it, right? It's like, well, why would I send him? But then, I don't know, David reasoned in his heart, two years have gone by. The closest thing to me going myself is to send Amnon, the crown prince. It would mean that the throne of Israel is represented, and it's a great family event. So the next best thing to myself going is to send Amnon, so David obliges. Verse 28, then Absalom 
commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. You know, two scriptures come to my mind here when I read this. The first one I think of is how David plotted and set his plan against Uriah. Remember that? When Bathsheba's pregnant and David wanted to cover up his adultery with her, what did he do? He brought Uriah to his home, got him drunk on two occasions, and tried to get everything all covered up. Now, now Amnon uses the same tactic to murder his, his brother. Get him drunk, then strike him dead. The other, the other verse that I hear to me, actually, is Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. Be strong and courageous, that command. As the children of Israel, as Joshua is being commanded by the angel of the Lord to, to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. Strike him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. And then in verse 29, we read this. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on their way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down the king's sons and not one of them is left. Then the king arose, tore his garments and lay on the earth and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, there is a sneaky, crafty man again. Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men. For the king's sons, the king's sons, sorry. For Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore... Let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. So here's this sneaky, shrewd guy. He's always positioning himself to be a manipulator uh, to his own benefit. He lets the king know, hey, man, this has been planned for a long time. This is revenge for what happened to Tamar. Now we read on verse 34. But Abs Absalom fled, and the young man who kept watch, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. Oh, he's like a prophet. He's so amazing. Verse 36. And as, as soon as he finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Ahimahad, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. Now, this is really interesting. This is some of the things we don't catch. But Absalom has fled to his grandfather on his maternal mother's side, Talmai, the king of Geshur. This is Absalom's got royal blood on both sides of his family line, through his father David and through his mother. And now he's next in line to be uh, the king of Israel, next in line to the throne of David. No doubt, I bet his grandfather and Gesher love this whole scene. This is excellent. His grandson marries off his daughter in a political arrangement, and now his grandson is next in line to become the king of Israel. So, in Gesher, I mean, it's just kind of fun to speculate about this, think about these things in Scripture. 
I bet grandpa and grandson sat around together for three years around the fire in the evening plotting how this young man could ascend to the throne of Israel, how he could steal the hearts of the people of Israel and take his father's throne. What's fascinating about Absalom as we read this and as we read this chapter is this, that not once is the Lord mentioned. Not once. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, David is mourning the loss of the crown prince Amnon and he is mourning the loss of the now heir apparent who has fled the country. David has lost two sons here. Two. And verse 39 says this, And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Cha- this is an interesting chapter because God's not mentioned anywhere. David's reaping what he sowed, and the one who pays the worst price is his daughter Tamar. And she asked this question, If you do this to me, Amnon, where will I carry my shame? Where can I get rid of my shame? And here we have David. We know this about David. David is God's anointed choice. But David here leaves us wanting. He fails in his own anger. There is a lack in him. The insufficient anointed king, I would call him in this text, his ability to deal with this situation, to deal with his sons, to deal with his daughter, Tamar has nowhere to go. And the whole point of this text, like every text in Scripture, is to get us looking for another king, church. Another anointed of God. Is there anywhere where Tamar can go? Is there anyone who can deal with Tamar's shame and can deal with any woman's shame or any woman's pain? And the answer to the word of God is yes, there is, and his name is King Jesus. Amen? There is a king. There is a king to whom you can bring your shame, a king who can bear it, and he invites you to bring it to his cross, to bring it to King Jesus, and Jesus can right the wrong. He can right the wrong that is done to us. He can right the wrong that we have done against someone else. You know, I think about Jesus in Nazareth at the very start of his ministry. He sat down at that syn- in that synagogue in Nazareth, And the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the scroll of Isaiah and he read this passage of scripture. I'm going to read it in part from Isaiah 61. He said this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to grant to those who mourn in Zion. Zion's the city of Jerusalem. This is a young woman mourning in Zion. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Instead of your shame, it says in Isaiah 61 verse 7, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. 
And this is what Jesus does for us, amen? Many people pack shame, many. And to those who are carrying ashes like Tamar, Tamar tore her robe and put ashes on her head. All I can tell you is this, is that Jesus said this, that he will give a beautiful headdress to those who come to him with their ashes. Instead of hanging their head in shame, Jesus will lead you to hold your head high as a child of the king. He wants to give beauty for ashes. He has a double portion for your shame. And so we bring it to him. That's where we bring it. We carry it to him. We bring it to the cross. And Jesus can do this. He can pick up a broken heart, wrap it in the robe of his righteousness, give a garment of praise for the faint spirit. And that's how the word of God directs us as his children to cast all of our anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Think about tomorrow asking this question, to where will I go with my shame? Well, the wonderful thing about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is this, is that there is someone to whom we can turn, and his name is Jesus. Now, chapter 14. Now, Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Joab uh, was David's cousin. Again, a lot of family stuff going on here. Commander of his army. Um, and Joab knew this, that it was terrible to lose Amnon, but there was still a, a living son named Absalom, and the, the heart of the king was longing for reconciliation with his son. And so Joab recognizes that. And so let's read through a bit of this text, verse 2. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been in mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled one with one another in the field. And there was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who has struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. So they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Verse 8. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he will never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord the king. He said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. 
We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my Lord the King, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my Lord the king will set me at rest, for my Lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, do not hide anything from me when I ask you. And the woman said, let my Lord the king speak. The king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered him, as surely as you live, my Lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that the Lord my king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all the things that are on the earth. <laughs> so it all spills out, right? This whole scene, Joab set it all up. This woman comes with this story about two brothers, two sons, one whom killed the other. She begged the king, protect the living son. Would you protect him? Because he's guilty of murdered, but if his life is taken, I cannot bear being deprived of my two boys, uh, even if the living one deserves to die for killing his brother. And then she flips it right onto David. She's, hey, this is the scene. Your son has killed his brother, and now he's gone off. So verse 21, the king, then the king said to Joab, behold, now I grant this, Go back and bring the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. Now, I, I, I read this, I, I kind of wonder about what the, Moab, uh, what the motivation of Joab was. Motivation, Joab, I made that into Moab together there, making up words. Uh, maybe it was his love for the king. Maybe Joab was like just motivated by his loyalty to King David, uh, maybe watching his friend and relative just going through the pain of losing two sons was just painful and he wanted to help. I do wonder if Job was like totally calculating in all this. He's like setting himself politically up, you know, for the time when Absalom would ascend to the throne. Who knows what it is, but check it out again now. Verse 23, we'll read a bit more. So Joab arose went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much praised to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. Well, I, I mean, this is really weird, actually, again. Okay, great. He went to the hairdresser. I mean, 
But it's very important to the story, this description of Absalom. Remember when David was anointed king? Remember when Samuel went and sought him out and anointed him? And the word of God says that, Daniel, or that David was described as ruddy and handsome. But the Lord told Samuel, Samuel, God doesn't look at men like men look at men. God doesn't look at the outside, Samuel. Don't focus on the outside because God looks at the heart. God looks beyond the surface. God is looking. He, he told Samuel this, I'm going to give myself a king, a man who has a heart after me. That's what God's looking for. He's looking for people with a heart after him. Absalom was a very good looking man, but he was lacking in character. Looks, but no character. And he wanted to be king. And it's very interesting. It's not his heart we're told about. What are we told about? His hair. He had great hair, you know? It's a strange description to report how important this is, you know? It's strange when it's reported about his haircut. It's funny to imagine a man pining for power and the best description that you can give about him is to comment on his hair. And I have to wonder if Absalom also wore really cool socks. I don't know. (laughs) He has great hair, but he's totally lacking in character. You have to pity a nation led by a man like that. Seems oddly familiar. But I would say this, you know, great hair, I can only imagine what that would be like. But I don't want to sound like a bitter bald man, so let's move on. Verse 27, he's got no character, church. That's what we see here. There were born to Absalom three sons, and one daughter whose name was Tamar, she was a beautiful woman. Absalom's sons likely all died before he did, uh, probably lost in infancy because at the time of his death, we're going to see this in a couple weeks, um, the scripture says that he actually had no heir. Remember, he built a monument to himself because there was no heir in his place. So verse uh, 28, so Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. So this is crazy. Because from the time that Tamar was raped till the time that Absalom killed Amnon, two years go by, then Absalom flees. He goes to his grandpa, the king of Geshur. He stays there for three years. Then he's brought back to Israel, and he's two years, two full years in Jerusalem before he ever sees his father, the king. This is a family drama that's going on for a little while. That's what I want you to catch. Seven years. Seven years since Tamar was violated and five years since Absalom had even seen his father. That's in a strange relationship. This is a family drama and a situation that has gone on and on and on. Now, verse 29. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him, and he sent him a second time, but Joab would not come. Not sure why all this is. Again, you know, Joab's a very political figure in the scriptures. Probably, you know, knew that it wasn't a good thing for him to be associating with Absalom while he's still estranged from his father and to get himself in the middle. So, you know, he doesn't respond to Absalom or acknowledge his authority as the now crowned prince. 
So Absalom hatches a plan. Verse 30. Such a schemer. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? So now Joab's got no choice. He's got to go to Absalom. And again, you might question what his motives are, but um, now he can do so freely. And according to law, Absalom had to pay up for destroying Joab's field. So Joab's going to collect. Now verse 32, Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Verse 33, then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. And so after five years, uh, the father receives a son. David receives Absalom with a kiss of reconciliation. Five years of separation, long time. But what's interesting about this to me is this, is that Absalom comes back into the king's presence and is like, did you hear anything about repentance or godly sorrow? There is no record of repentance. No request for forgiveness. In Scripture, there is no record of Absalom's version of Psalm 51, you know. Remember when David was confronted for his sin, he wrote that beautiful psalm, Lord, created me a clean heart. Take not your spirit from me. No account with regards to Absalom of his brokenness or of his worship of the Lord or is going to the house of God in Jerusalem to present sacrifices for his sins, just more scheming with future calculations on how he could take the throne from his father. There was truce, but I would say that there was a truce, but there was no peace between them. And now he would begin to execute the plot how to usurp the throne from his father with a silver tongue. We'll see next week, he'll steal the hearts of the people. And when the time is right, he's going to take the capital by a storm. And I can't help uh, but think, you know, as we wrap up this chapter about the difference between Absalom's relationship with David and the relationship that we're to have with Christ. You know, how we approach the king. How we're to approach our father in heaven. Because Jesus offers to us the kiss of reconciliation. You know, not willing that any should perish should be separated from him. Even Even those who have betrayed him. But the attitude in which we approach Jesus matters, right church? Because he's looking for hearts that want to serve him. A hard attitude. And that involves humility. It involves repentance. It revolves, involves humility, a, a right view of self and a correct view of who King Jesus is. That's why his word says this, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And 
The way that we do that is with a heart of repentance, seeking forgiveness. When there is a separation, brokenness, we, we go to the Lord and we say, God, I desire that you would create in me a clean heart. That you would renew a right spirit within me. Lord, I sense the shame of my sin or the shame of whatever it is, and I bring it to you. And his word says this, that a broken and contrite heart, the Lord will not despise. He won't despise that. And so as we think about this text and we point it all to Jesus, it's like, maybe you need to hear this this morning. What is the shame you're carrying? What is the area of your life where there is a need for reconciliation with Jesus? If it's shame that you're packing because of hurt or pain or something that someone else has done to you, I'll tell you this, Jesus wants to give you beauty for those ashes, oil of joy for that morning, put a beautiful headdress on your head and give you the double portion. For those bearing their own sin, there is forgiveness for those who come to the Lord with humble and contrite hearts and repentance and in a desire to be washed in the blood of Jesus. A broken heart, Jesus. A broken and contrite heart, Jesus will not despise. David failed much in these chapters. We serve a king who won't. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning and invite the worship team to come? Let's pray.